Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. Hi, Liz. Hello, Nathan. How are you? I am wonderful as always. How are you? I am fantastic. Today we will be talking with two guests about investigations. And so as we're going through our month of child abuse and neglect and talking about some preventative measures and things that are going on in the child welfare system, we felt that it was important to really get in on the investigative side and see what does it look like prior to a child coming into care and how are those decisions made. So we will hear from an experienced investigator and a foster care alumni about their experiences prior to uh, coming into care or into bringing someone in care. So with me today is Beth and our Beth and Susie. Hello, Beth. Hi, Nathan. Hi. Hello, Susie. Hello, Nathan. How are you both doing? I'm doing great. Fantastic. All right. So Beth is our experienced investigator and Susie, our alumni. So I'll just have you both start with telling us a little bit about yourself. Either one can go f- first and then just tell us who you are, kind of what brought you here, what makes you... The expert, I guess. Uh, I worked for the children's division for um, quite some time, and I no longer work there any anymore. I retired. Um, I had, have still work in child welfare okay. in, in another agency that um, continues to work with children that are brought into foster care. Okay. So... I was a former foster child in the early 90s. I got picked up in uh, April of 91. I was in care for uh, approximately two years. Okay. And so I know that there's a lot of misconceptions, misinformation, um, questions about the investigative process. (laughs) And so I I do want us to definitely focus today on how, how we enlighten our community into what that looks like, both from, again, um, the child side and from the investigator side. So, Beth, kind of, can you talk to us about what is going on in the system prior to or during an investigation? So, what leads to an investigator coming out to a home? So, the first thing that happens is that a hotline has to be received, and the hotline um, is is called into a central database uh, when I was there. And that database then will send it out to the county where the child resides. And then an investigator will get that information and will make contact with the family. Sometimes they make contact in the home. Sometimes they make contact uh, at other places within the community. And um, they start the investigation at that point with the information that they receive. They have to verify information or or find that it's not true um, and make a decision that then um, is reviewed by several other people. It's not just an independent decision that's made by one person at any given time. And that's kind of how that all starts. Okay. And so you mentioned a couple of things that I just want to follow up with. You said that there's a time frame that's involved with 
once an investigation is called or a hotline is made, how is that time frame established? What is the time frame, I guess, and how is it established? So the time frame um, is established that for a majority of reports, uh, the investigator has 24 hours in okay. order to uh, make contact with the family. In cases where they're uh, deemed to be an emergency, mm-hmm. they have three hours to respond to those. Oh, wow. Okay. So are there hotline calls that are made to that central location um, that are not given to the counties because they're deemed not applicable um, after the hotline phone call is made, or are they all given to the counties to investigate? Sometimes I think that information comes in to the central database, and based on a decision-making tree that they use, there may be calls that aren't don't rise to what they say the level of a hotline is. So sometimes they'll be just um, a reported call of concern. And those uh, are generally notified to the county and they're aware of those, but they don't mean that an investigator necessarily would go out and investigate those. What would be just maybe a few examples of what that would look like, what those calls would be? They might be a call where... hmm, where somebody has called in and said that they felt that uh, a child was um, in need of services, um, but they didn't necessarily know the name of the child or they didn't know necessarily an address of where to find the child. So those calls, for a lack of information, nobody could go out on. Absolutely. Something like that. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um so we've established 24 hours is typically the max time before an investigator has to lay eyes on the child and the um, suspected abuser. What does that look like communication-wise for the family? Are we showing up and saying, hey, we got this call? Are we prepping them with these are the concerns that we've had? How does that process look on the investigative side? So... Most of the time, the investigator is going to meet with the child that's the victim child first. Okay. And in some instances, uh, they may contact the family after they've met with the victim child and let them know that they're, they need to meet with other children, um, that also reside in the home. Okay. So it, it's kind of a twofold thing there, but for the most part, a victim child is identified to be met with as soon as possible. Okay. So for you, Susie, then um, hearing this information, does that match your experiences? Yes, it does. Um, What happened during my investigation was I was at school one uh, day in April, and the counselor came down to my science class and said that she needed to speak to me. And so I went with her, and when I went into the counselor's office, she had a box of tissues on the table, and I just knew that she was going to ask me something pretty serious because why would there be Kleenexes? Mm -hmm. And she sat down and said, I just have one question to ask you, and based on that question, uh, decide, you know, that makes the decision of what I got to do next. And so she asked if uh, my father had inappropriately touched me, and I said yes. And so based on that, then she made the phone call. I would assume at the time I did not know, but I would assume that it would be to the investigator's office. And they showed up within the, uh, I would say, a couple of hours um, at my school to have a conversation with me about the allegations that I had against my father. 
And so what led to her asking that question? That seems very random. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, I was at a sleepover with some friends and okay. we were around talking in the middle of the night and I made a comment about how I don't like being woke up on Saturday morning by my father, um, that he was trying to do things inappropriately to me. And all the girls looked at me like I was crazy mm -hmm. because that wasn't normal. Mm -hmm. I thought it was normal. And then that little girl went to her mom and told her mom what had happened okay. that night at the sleepover. And her mom said, you need to go to the counselor and tell the counselor. Okay. Okay. So for you having that question and answering that question, was that something that you had been anticipating being able to do? Was it easy to say, yes, this was happening to me? Or did you feel the need to, in the beginning, hide what was going on? So when she asked that question, I paused for a minute and I did have that thought of, so do I open this or do I keep it closed? And then my second thought was, if I just get it out, it'll stop and then everything will be okay. I had no idea of what was really going to transpire once I answered that question. Okay. And and so for you, Beth, you, you get a situation or you maybe hear of a situation like Susie's. Um, how do you form the questions? How do you know what to ask? What what are you looking for um, in order to make your next steps? Or what would someone be looking for in order to make the next steps from that? I think it would be an interview um, with Susie mm -hmm. that would um, include things that would answer questions like, is she safe at, at this particular moment if she goes home today mm -hmm. is her father still in the home is it likely that that kind of abuse could continue to happen mm -hmm. or that something else could happen to her as a result of maybe um, disclosing the abuse so those initial questions are formed around that particular piece and making sure that she's going to be safe and if there are other children in the home um, that we need to make sure that, that we talk to. Sometimes the hotline comes in and it's going to talk about Susie and what Susie has said, but it may not disclose whether she has brothers and sisters or there's mm. anybody else that's living in the home. Do those questions, the format of the questions that are asked, change um, based on age of the child who's reporting? Mm. It can, um, but the in initial questions regarding safety would pretty much be the same, no matter what age they are, finding out that particular kind of information. Okay. And so I, I know here quickly we have to go to break, um, but one of the questions that I would ask for you, Susie, just to touch base on before we go to break is, were those questions, once the investigator came, something that you felt like um, got to the root of the issue for you? Yeah, unfortunately, once I made the allegations uh, about my father, she made the call, and then afterwards I was crying, and so then she asked if I wanted to talk about it. And so I talked all about it to her, and then once the then she sent me back to class, and once the investigator showed up, then I had to say it all over again. Okay. And so I had already talked about it at first, but then I had to talk about it again, and unfortunately, I probably told the same story 10 times that day. Okay. And so when we come back from break, I want to pick up on that and hear how are we helping our kids get through those types of things when we return on Fostering Hope.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. Welcome again, Liz. Welcome to you, too. I always say hi because I just am not sure how to start these, you know? So it's like, hi, hi, for people just joining. I don't know what to say, really, because this show is um, so... I'm just enthralled. Yeah. So I, I can't think of anything to say to you. I just want to... Listen I want to hear people. more. Like yeah. I would. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so before break, we were talking about our investigations and what those look like. And Susie was talking to us about having to retell her story multiple times. And so I, I'm sorry that I had to cut you off to go to break. But can you talk to us about um, what was that like? So you tell it to the counselor. What what happened next? So I tell it to the counselor. And after I tell it to the counselor, she sends me to first or second hour, whatever hour that was, and said, I'll have you come back up once the investigator gets here or the case manager. And so then the uh, investigator comes. And so then I have to go and talk to that person. Then she sends me back to class again. Um, I've been crying all morning, but she continues to send me back to class. Then the nurse, a nurse comes and I have to talk to her. And then a caseworker comes and I have to talk to her. And it's around lunchtime that I'm done talking to people and I don't hear anything from anybody all afternoon. And then it's around time to go home. And I ask, like, so what am I supposed to do? You know, I go to the front office and ask to speak to the counselor and just ask, like, what am I supposed to do? Do I get on the bus? Do I go home? Or do I stay here? Nobody has given me any information at that point. So I counted four times just in you saying that, that you told your story before 12 o'clock. Yes. And they were still having you go back to class. What what was that like for your peers? Were you Did you feel like you had to explain? Did you feel like you had to cover up? Were people, people even notice? Yeah. I am the jokester or the class clown, so it was very odd for them to see that I had tears in my eyes or that I'd been crying a long time. So I really did not want to tell anybody why I was being pulled out of class or why I had tears. So I tried to make some funny jokes to cover up what was really truly going on. But it was very traumatizing to go back and forth and not know. Like, I had no idea. And every time I talked to somebody, I would ask them questions like, Who's going to tell my mom? Yeah. Who's going to talk to my brothers? Like, what does this really mean? Like, what kind of worms have I just opened? And at one point in time, I don't know if it was the investigator or the caseworker said, don't worry, we're somebody is going to your mom's work to let her know what allegations you have uh, stated. And I thought, she's a very angry person that I don't know that that was handled correctly for her. So... Beth, hearing this situation, is this a typical response? Is this how things are done um, in terms of when the kid starts making or makes an allegation that they're repeatedly telling their story? Sure. I I believe that there has been a lot of research that has happened since the 90s with Mm -hmm. Susie that has let us know that kids become traumatized first by the abuse and then by the retelling of the abuse over and over again. Okay. And so when at all possible, we, we want to minimize the amount of times that Susie would have to tell that story. First off, the story doesn't necessarily change, but, it, but it loses substance every time that, that you tell the story. Mm-hmm. And, and secondly, um, it's just, it, it's not, it's not productive. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful to the investigation and it's not helpful, definitely not helpful to Susie. And so that, like I said, is, is really minimized. Um, it, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to her uh, with having to go through that so many times. It breaks my heart. 
um, for her to have to uh, worry about who's going to tell her mom and not having the information and nobody really just um, taking time to be with Susie. Yeah. And um, I hope that that's different now. Okay. And and you, you said, you know, that it loses substance and, have there been times or are there times where that lack of substance or because it's losing or because a kid doesn't want to tell the story four times that the result isn't ideal? Um, so what would have happened if Susie, after the first time, was like, no, I retract all of this? It happens a lot. Um, and what generally happens is there's no way to um, prove that the allegations are true. And... Um, a lot of times those children are sent back home to a possibly unsafe situation. And, and that, that's a frustration that investigators deal with all the time. Um, worrying about whether, you know, I've made a child safer today or I've placed a child back in an unsafe place. And, you know, it's something that um, it tends to build up within investigators. And over a period of time, it sometimes is too much to handle. Do you feel like when when the youth do tell that story once and they they've told it and they don't want to they don't want to tell it again, they have lost um, hope in adults helping them. And so if things happen in the future, they're they're not going to say anything. I tried once to tell mm-hmm. people and nothing happened. Is that a, is that a real um, that a situation experience? that yeah. that happens? I believe it is a real and valid thing that that happens a lot and. Um, you know, and, and there's also children that uh, are told at home that they shouldn't tell yeah. or that yeah. um, are threatened that if they do tell that bad things will happen. And yeah. so they they learn not to talk and not to tell. And um, so then you have a school counselor or someone, you know, that really meant well and wanting to do the right thing. Um, and then it unloads this snowball that just continues to roll down the hill Mm -hmm. with everybody else being involved. And over the course of that, um, it kind of does things, I believe probably even to the relationship between Susie and the counselor, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if Susie's sent home and nobody helped her at that point. Right. So Susie, it's the end of the day. You're trying to figure out what's happening what does the rest of that day look like? So the counselor told me to go ahead and get on the bus. And so I really had no idea why I was being sent on the bus. Um, I knew that my mom knew because at some point in time they had let me know that she was aware. And so I got on the bus and I went home. And as I got to my bus stop, um, I lived in a cul-de-sac. And so there was three cop cars at the at the end of my cul-de-sac. I lived in the inner parts of the cul-de-sac mm-hmm. and I just knew that they were there for me and all that had occurred that day. And so I just started to cry cause I had no idea what that even looked like. And so I went up to the police officers and I just was like, hi, yeah. <laughs> not really knowing what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And they were like, well, your mom's inside if you want to go in and talk to her. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go talk to her. So I go inside and I didn't realize at the time, but she was on the phone talking to somebody and I didn't know who she was talking to, but I waited until she got off the phone. And when she got off the phone, I just asked her, you know, do you believe me? Do you believe what 
what I'm saying. And that's when she went ballistic and was like, I don't know who to believe. Your dad's in jail. I got to go bail him out. And I don't know what to do. And I thought, okay. Well, with her raising her voice, the police officers came in and they were like, well, uh, ma'am, Susie, do you want to stay or do you want to go? And I thought, this woman is yelling at me. You really think that I want to stay? So um, I left. I left at that time still not knowing, like still in the back of my head thinking, I'm going to come home. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to eat dinner. I'm going to go to school the next day, having no idea what that entails for the future. And uh, that's so very frustrating. And I know we have to go to break, but when we come back, I do want to talk about that system because it sounds like you were almost made to seem like you were the person who was the doing the crime. And so I want to get into more of that when we come back um, after our quick commercial break. So we'll hear from you and we'll hear from Beth on some solutions for these types of things on fostering hope. back to fostering hope hi liz jump the gun there (laughs) love giving you a hard time uh we've we've been talking with Susie and beth about investigations and really uh, getting into some of the the harder parts of this story and hearing about how it was handled by the adults in the situation so before break Susie, you were saying that the cops really left it up to you that the first the school left it up to you and told you to go home and then the cops left it up to you and saying hey do you want to go talk to your mom and oh, she doesn't believe you, but hey, do you also want to leave or do you want to stay? So ridiculousness. I mean. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious because I know that it was a smaller town that mm-hmm. you were living in. And I know Beth has been an investigator not only in the city and the greater metropolitan area, but also in a very small town in a rural area. So I want to know what are the differences um, with how the investigations take place in a smaller town as opposed to the city in your experience? I think one of the things um, that's different, obviously, would be the the number of investigators that that are available at any given time. Uh, in a small county, you may have only um, two or three it, that are handling a, a large geographical area, um, and police departments are not nearly as large as they are in a metropolitan area. Um, in investigations or hotlines um anytime they're assessing a family you're looking at resources within a community um resources are uh prevalent in the um metropolitan areas there's lots of different um avenues that a family can take in order to get services and um to preserve families being together and, and that's a, a frustration for uh, more of the smaller um, communities to be able to cover all of the different needs that families have. Um, so I think that uh, you, you're probably going to have a little bit different experience uh, with an investigation if you're in a, a smaller area than you would in a larger community. Were there any um, situations or um you know, stories that you remember from working in the smaller town that made it more difficult um, to be an investigator. 
you know, with the, with the smaller population. So I also lived in the same community that I worked in. And mm. one of the things that uh, was very difficult, especially because of confidentiality, you, you couldn't talk about a family or a child that you went out to see. I would show up at a school mm-hmm. and um, my children attended the school and they'd say, Oh, you came to see Susie today. Mm-hmm. Is Susie okay? Mm-hmm. And so everybody knew that this is what I did. Mm-hmm. And so if I showed up at the school, it was to talk to somebody. And when you're in a, a small school of maybe, you know, 120 students, it, everybody kind of knows everybody. So there, there were situations where I'd come home and my kids would want to know if Susie was okay. And I'm not able to provide them that kind of information. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part was, was hard. Uh, there were also situations where I would go to, you know, even a grocery store or mm-hmm. someplace and um, maybe Susie's mom would be in the grocery store and she'd see me and identify me and then want to talk about the whole situation in, in the community um, where everyone else could hear it. And you try to preserve the family's um confidentiality uh, as best you can. And I think that that is a struggle that investigators have. Absolutely. So Susie, the, the cops have asked whether you want to leave or go. And then you said you want to go. What, what is the rest of your, did, did they tell you where you were going? No, they did not tell me where I was going. So they put me in the cop car. Of course, I did not have to ride in the back because I was not the criminal. However, it's still all the neighbors are looking at me. They don't know right. what's going on. I'm getting in the cop car. So it does look like I'm the bad, bad kid. kid doing something wrong. Um, and they take me to the police station. And I probably sit at the police station for about an hour with nobody speaking to me on what mm-hmm. is going to happen. I don't know if I'm going home. I don't, I don't know where I'm going. And so a caseworker shows up around five o'clock and tells me that I'm supposed to get in the car and go with her. And it was at that time she starts to drive away and I'm telling her where I live. Like, you know, you need to turn here, not there. And she's like, I'm not taking you home. And it was then that I finally got the information that because my mom didn't believe me and bailed my dad out of jail, that I then had to go into foster care. And I did not know what foster care was. I didn't know anything about it. And I said, well, where am I going? And she was like, well, you're going to go into the children's shelter um, in downtown Kansas City. And I did not know where that was, what that was. Um, And so I arrived there um, that evening, and I stayed there for about six weeks. I mean, I was there for six weeks before then I was asked to go into um, long-term foster care. So you get brought into the counselor's office at seven or eight or nine in the morning, talk to four people before 12 Mm o'clock, go home, hear from a police officer that you have to confront your mom or taken to a police station. And it's not until six o'clock that someone's even told you what's going on. And still at this point, you have not had anyone provide you any type of emotional support. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, that's correct. At that time, did you wish that you hadn't said anything? Yes, because I did not want my whole purpose in telling was to just get it to stop, not to uproot myself out of my family and then have my family go through this horrible turmoil because of the allegations that I had made. I just wanted it to stop. That's it. 
So the whole story that you have told, I'm hearing about the police officers and the counselor. I'm not hearing a lot about interactions with the investigator. Were there a lot of interactions with the investigator? Or, um, Beth, what would the investigator be doing if there weren't a lot of interactions with the child? Of course, the investigator is having to gather information, and, and they may be gathering information from lots of different places. I mean, they've, they've gathered it from Susie. Um, they've had to um, notify Susie's mom. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been in communication with the police department, and, and dad was arrested. And so there's there's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes. But I like to think that over time we've learned that we can't just let Susie sit there for that long period of time because that's that's not attending to her. And and she's the one that everybody should be attending to at that point. So I think that um, things have gotten better mm-hmm. so that um, they are uh, given the opportunity there's if they're not the investigator is not able to then they've at least sent another worker out there's somebody else that's probably going to be there to be with Susie and to communicate those things with her and to walk beside her mm-hmm. um through that process so that it's not scary or it's scary obviously right. I don't want to invalidate that but um to make it so that sometimes knowledge helps and so you you said that Beth that there were things going on behind the scenes and that the investigators involved a lot and so that makes me believe that it's the investigator's decision whether Susie would come into care or not is that an accurate assumption? No. Okay. Um basically for an emergency removal of a child and and this is by Missouri statute that <clears throat> there are basically three people that have the ability to do that and that would be a juvenile officer. Um, that would be um, a law enforcement officer, and it would be a medical uh, professional. Okay. So the investigator themselves is gathering this information and then handing this over to people that are then making that decision. Okay. So the investigator almost loses some of, doesn't really have a whole lot of power in terms of the direction of a child's life besides taking the initial response. Is that? That's true. You know, and, and, Investigators deal with that all the time, that people believe that the investigator um, enjoys removing kids from homes, right. which is totally untrue. Um, we know that that's the last resort, that children need to be preserved as much as they can in, in their homes. Um, so that's a misconception about investigations, but, but it's one that has been around for a really long time, and it's, it's hard to break. And, and so, Susie, as you got to the the shelter, what was your final experience with the investigator for that day? Did did you talk to an investigator at all the rest of the day, or was it? No, I didn't talk to an investigator at all the rest of the day. However, then it was that next day that I went to the hospital, okay. and then they proceeded to do other um, things that they needed to do to verify whether I was telling the truth or you know to. Or telling a lie. So I did that. Um, I didn't go to court till four days after I got into care, and I did not know what court meant, what does that look like. And court just determined whether I could go home or I had to stay in care. And because my mom did not believe me, I had to stay in care. 
And so I stayed at the shelter for uh, about five weeks after that and then had another court case or a court hearing, and they said that because my mom was not budging, she was not wanting to believe it, that then I had to uh, go into foster care. So they were looking for a home for me to go into after that. So, Beth, I, I know, again, we have to go to break, but in a situation like this where we have parents who don't believe the accusations that is happening, is there any role that an investigator even plays in getting the parents to understand what that looks like or getting other adults to understand what that looks like that the child is, in fact, um, hurting? I think if the parent is is not wanting to believe, but they are willing to at least provide us grandparents, aunts, uncles, somebody that the child knows um, then the investigator would probably be taking an active role in trying to locate a family member that the child can stay with um, so that at least it's a little less scary than going someplace that they absolutely don't know. Okay. And so when we come back from break, I want to wrap up with um, what are some preventative steps that we are doing as a system when we return on Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. We're ending our conversation with Susie and Beth on the investigative standpoint uh, for Child Abuse and Prevention Month. And so we've talked about some really hard things and um, some system failures. Honestly, at, at some point, there were some system failures for you, Susie. Um, and so we've heard about some of the ways that the system is changing. But um, I know we have a question on what happens next. So, so um, with Susie, of course, that day wasn't a, a regular work day. It wasn't a nine to five, and she gets to forget about it after that. And for the investigator, m- maybe there's a misconception that, well, it's their job, nine to five. They get to go home, and they forget about it, and they start all over again. Is that actually the case? Do you get to leave work at work when you're doing investigations? I don't think I've ever left work at work um, any day. Uh, doing child welfare. Um, I believe that with every investigation, the investigator takes a piece of that. It may be um, something the child said or um, questioning whether the decision was the right decision, um, but you store that and you continue to store that and you, they add up. Um, it leads to a, a lot of sleepless nights. Um, for example, uh, for me, I was every night li- watching the news. Um, the 10 o'clock news would come on, and they'd put the little segues in the beginning, the little teasers that would say, child was um, um, found um, in an abandoned house or, or something. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm holding my breath until that segment airs because I'm worried about this child. I may never meet this child. But because of the love and the passion that investigators have for their jobs, that is something that they are going to continue to just take with them. And, um, you know, I, sometimes I was up uh, till the middle of the night trying to get paperwork done or trying to make sure I had that home study done so that Susie could go and stay with her uncle because I knew that that was someone she knew. Um 
so you, there there's that piece that you just you you never get the opportunity to just shut it off and it follows you years down the road you know i i find good things in in small pieces i may run into a family that i haven't seen in 15 years and they remember me and they remember me and they say you know what i want to thank you mm-hmm. for what you did um you made a difference in my life um or i i see a family that got back together i mean i was involved maybe in the investigative piece and it was substance abuse related for example and the family is now back together and i see mom and dad and the kids and they're at a park and they're doing things as a family and they're they're clearly in a much better place so it's those kind of things you know that you learn to take and um be happy with those things and be able to move forward and and to continue to do that type of work and there's a lot of people out there with a lot of passion that do that kind of work absolutely and so for for you Susie i mean i know prior to break you were talking about at one point you wished that you hadn't said anything because it completely uprooted your life as an adult. Is that still a feeling you have? No, it's not. If I could go back, I would do it all over again the same way. I'm very grateful for my friend that said something to the counselor. I'm very grateful for the counselor uh, making the phone call that did uproot my life, but it uprooted it in a way that gave me life. If that makes any sense. Um, I was in care for about two years And after being in care for two years, my mom never came around to uh, believing my story. And so she gave me up to the state. She decided that she no longer wanted to be my parent. And so with that, um, I asked my foster family, Mark and Debbie Hearsman, to um, adopt me. And they gladly adopted me. So I got adopted at the age of 15. Um, Then I was sent off to college. My adopted parents sent me off to college. And after that, I um, graduated from college and got married. And I've been married for 17 years, and I've got four beautiful children. And I have a daughter, and I get to see my daughter have a normal childhood where she can lay in bed with her dad and not have to worry about anything inappropriate happening. Mm -hmm. And that is because of somebody saving my life that I didn't have to have a daughter that goes through some of these same issues over and over and over again. So I'm very thankful. Was it easy? No, but I would do it again to get to where I'm at today. And I think that that's so important to hear. So there were things that could have been done better, but at the very base of it, somebody said something, which is something we've talked about over the last few weeks with our child abuse and neglect um, segment, that somebody said something, your friend told somebody who took a proactive approach and even asking you and not just saying, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you, go back to class, but then went and called the investigator who then came out within 24 hours, came out within three hours Mm -hmm. and talked to you and got the ball moving and said, okay, we got to inform mom, we have to call the cops, we have to figure out what's going on. And so I think that's a really important piece to hear that though there were pieces that made it uncomfortable um, and Mm -hmm. allowed for a little bit of regret at the very base of it people did something um which is so important right um and so i think you know it really is so hard to hear about the circumstances that lead kids in care but it also is very powerful to hear you know professionals like you beth talking about this is something that you get into not because it's a nine to five but because you care um and when you care enough you allow opportunities like susie's adult life to happen 
Um, I know in our last segment uh, last week they were talking about preventative and how the community approach everyone is watching out for everyone else has sort of dissipated a little bit and everyone wants to mind their own business. But this is a perfect example of, of why we can't let that happen because say that friend had told her mom and her mom said, that's not our business. It could have been so much different. So this is for the community. This is something that you need to remember, get in that business, be that person that changes people's lives for the better. And I would say that it's okay if they're mad at you for getting in their business because down the road they will come back and probably thank you for getting in their business. Because if I could see my friend again, wherever she's at, I would thank her for telling her mom and for the counselor to step up to the plate and go do something hard instead of being like, well, I'm just not going to deal with this today. I'm just not in the mood. Um, I'm very grateful that they decided to uh, investigate further and find that I was in danger and I did need to be removed. And and so, Beth, if there was any one thing that you could say that is important for people to know uh, about investigations as we conclude, what do you think that would be? I think it would probably be that uh, it, it is a tough job, but um, to see um, Susie or um, other kids like Susie uh, have productive lives, that that's um, probably the most important piece, that that investigators are people too. And um, it's it's a difficult job, and everybody dislikes them, and, mm-hmm. and they deal with a lot of negativity because nobody's happy to see them coming. But hopefully people are happy to see them go um, in a positive way. Absolutely. And so I just want to thank you both for being here with us today. Thank you, Susie, for sharing your story. I know that that is extremely difficult and for you to do it so eloquently was just amazing. And thank you, Beth, for providing uh, the professional standpoint and helping us understand what that looks like. Uh, You've been listening to Fostering Hope, um, brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect, the comprehensive regional support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn more about how to become a foster parent or how you can help vulnerable children in other ways, please visit our organization's social media. Um, You can visit us at fosteradopt.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Until next time, thank you for listening to Fostering Hope.